This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. Quay, I'm Glenn Wheeler, and welcome to episode 231, made possible with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Mi'kmaq Matters. Later in the show, we'll be announcing the names of some of the people appearing at the special Mi'kmaq Matters land defense event taking place in Stephenville on October the 12th, so stay tuned for that. But first, a warm welcome to the newest member of the Mi'kmaq Matters radio network, QCCR, Queens County Community Radio, QCCR 99.3 FM in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, online at qccrfm.com. The voice of Mi'kmaq Matters in the District of Kesbukwit. Tune in to Mi'kmaq Matters at 9 p.m. local time every Wednesday. And a special shout out to members of Acadia First Nation listening to us on QCCR. Our appearance in the QCCR lineup could not be more timely. Last week, Mi'kmaq Matters was at one of the so-called Indigenous Engagement Sessions that CBC is holding across the country. We've always been a bit skeptical about these kinds of things. Are they for real or are they just ticking the boxes? The government told us we have to do it. Engagement done and now back to business as usual. Let's hope the public broadcaster is doing it for the right reason because As became very clear at the session we were at, the situation regarding CBC and Indigenous communities is grim. What we heard makes us want to rename CBC the Colonial Broadcasting System. Consider this, none of the news editors for the Atlantic region is Indigenous. There is only one reporter reporting specifically on Indigenous news, and that would be Oscar Baker. You may have seen his work on the CBC Indigenous website. But presumably, his work is being edited by non-Indigenous people. And most of the hard news stories are being covered by non-Indigenous people, not on CBC Indigenous. Take the stories about the treaty fisheries held by many Mi'kmaq communities. There have been complaints from Mi'kmaq people about some of the coverage and its lack of awareness about the constitutional and cultural dimensions of the treaty fisheries. A portrayal of Mi'kmaq people as being lawless and the commercial fishers as the good guys. If we need Mi'kmaq reporters, it's in coverage of the treaty fisheries, that's for sure. But last week we also got some news that gives us hope for better Mi'kmaq representation in the media. It comes from the School of Journalism at the University of King's College in Halifax, a school that yours truly attended back in the day. And Mi'kmaq Matters has a relationship with King's through our joint journalism internship program. Our Mi'kmaq Matters interns have provided some excellent coverage of politics and the arts. We're especially proud to be associated with King's after last week's very inspiring announcement. King's is dedicating 
$600,000 over five years to establish a program for Mi'kmaq students who want to study journalism at King's. According to the announcement, beginning in 2023, King's will, through a combination of scholarships, financial awards, and tuition waivers, fully cover the cost of tuition for up to three Mi'kmaq students each academic year who are studying in the university's undergraduate Bachelor of Journalism Honors program. Participants in the program must be endorsed by their communities and meet King's admission requirements, the announcement says. Maybe you're a young person from Acadia First Nation, or the parent, or the sister, or the brother of someone who might be interested in applying, or from any other Mi'kmaq community. We need our people telling our stories. For too long, other people have been speaking for us. Give it some thought. This is very important. And now we take our ocean-going birch bark canoe across the gulf to Tetumcook, also known as the island of Newfoundland. When it comes to our land and water, we're on the verge of losing everything in development on this island. Mining operations, fish farms, clear-cutting, and now a huge windmill development that would locate 164 turbines of more than 600 feet in height on a relatively small area of land on the Port-a-Port Peninsula. The windmill project has become a major political issue in the province, thanks to the heroic actions of residents in the area. But other things are happening under the radar. There's exploration drilling for lithium just off the Burjo Highway. To the northeast, activities by a company called Newfound Gold are impacting on traditional Mi'kmaq lands known as Charlie's Place, which is already threatened by a pulp and paper company's plan to log the area. More on that on a future episode. In many cases, development occurs without much public awareness or very much in the way of regulatory oversight. The government of Newfoundland and Labrador uses lax environmental rules as a competitive advantage. Do business with us, you can do whatever you damn well please. That's Newfoundland's unofficial marketing logo. And mining companies are allowed to dig up, cut, blast, and all other manner of environmentally destructive things when they're exploring for minerals long before they have to get official permission to build an actual mine. Before you know it, we'll have lost our natural legacy and we'll have nothing left for the next seven generations. That's why we're meeting in Stephenville on the evening of October 12th from 7 to 9 p.m. Newfoundland time and we'll be live on Facebook also. It's an emergency land and water defense summit. People have been doing great defense work, but each on their own issues. We need to come together in an alliance, a Mi'kmaq people land and water defense alliance, to trade info, pool resources, support each other, take action before it's too late. Though the issues are different, windmills, fish farms, gold mines, The challenges for land defenders is similar. People are left in the dark for as long as possible, and then we're forced to scramble to participate in an environmental review process that inevitably 
results in a thumbs up for the development. We here at Big Bump Matters have had a taste of the EA process ourselves, and it was pretty sour. We busted our butts to get funding to hire consultants and showed in clear and compelling terms that the Valentine Lake gold mine was high risk for already vulnerable caribou herds. Yet the process ended in a finding from the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada that the development would not have an adverse impact on the caribou. We are not going to save the land through the environmental review processes. No, that's how industry and governments suck us in, make us feel that we have input and we can make a difference in the outcome. We've fallen for that too many times. Now developers are playing the green card on wind energy and on lithium and copper mines that produce some of the ingredients for the much-touted electric vehicle. In wanting to save our land for future generations, we Indigenous people are being accused of being enemies of our beloved Mother Earth. How perverse is that? We need to support each other, compare notes, strategize, and maximize our people power. So here are some of the people you'll be hearing from in Stephenville. Of course, the evening would not be complete without the Environmental Transparency Committee trying to save the Port Port Peninsula from the 164, 600 feet high turbines. You heard from Marilyn Rowe on the program last week talking about how information was withheld from residents who will be affected by the windmill project, forcing them to scramble to prepare their submissions for the provincial government. I found out personally, I'm chair of the local service district of Shees Cove, and as community leader, I received a proposal from the government on July 8th. Our uh, deadline for submissions to the minister, Bernard Davis, environment minister, was July 27th. We have, you know, poor internet connection here, so all of our submissions were sent in on the 26th, just to be safe. However, that gave us 18 days to come up with as much information and letters and, and signatures from the people. Um, so the minister had said uh, the day of the announcement that there was, uh, I think, 35 days was the, the allowable time or the, you know, the, the supposed to be the, you know, um, I guess, legal time, amount of time that, that people should have. Uh, to to look at this uh, proposal and you know respond to the government. 35 days is is, is the, the period, and we had 18. So right from the get go, uh, this proposal uh, you know was sent out late to our community and to other LSDs, local service districts. However, the towns, the four towns on the Port of Port Peninsula. The mayors of these towns were in talks with the company World Energy GH2 in Stephenville in March. And along with the town leaders, there were, uh, it was Brendan Mitchell, uh, the chief for uh, Halapu, and uh, Jason Benoit, I believe, was attending those meetings as well. Um, so they were all in talk. They knew, you know, a lot of information and still know a lot of information that we're not privy to. Marilyn Rowe from the Environmental Transparency Committee. 
Is there a way for groups to pool resources, we wonder, rather than all of us having to figure out how to navigate the environmental review process? Perhaps we could develop internal capacity among our people advocates, capacity that we can share with other groups. Now, you might think that the Halibu First Nation might help us in the defense of land and water and provide those technical skills. People in Burgio have asked Halibu to help them in their fight against fish farms. You heard Greg Janes, former chief of the Burgio First Nation, compare the fight against fish farms to the struggle to preserve the ancestral Mi'kmaq territory known as Charlie's Place. Greg Janes told us that he had written to Halibu chief Brendan Mitchell asking for his support. I have just finished completing writing the uh, uh, Chief Brendan Mitchell and, that, and pleading with him to uh, uh, meet with us and uh, be on board with us that uh, we don't see this destruction because this is no different than, uh, uh, let's say, like Charlie's Place, um, you know, uh, this is no different in our environment. Uh, why should it take place here? And and uh, these companies come in and... Uh, destroy our pristine uh, salmon stocks and uh, so we I'm really pleading with with Chief Brendan Mitchell to hear the people of Burgio. We checked with Greg Janes and alas there has been no reply from Chief Mitchell. Perhaps we shouldn't hold our breath. The other First Nation on the island, Meobigeg in Con River, has major commercial interests in aquaculture and Miaobigag Chief Mazel Joe has continued to defend sea-based aquaculture despite all the scientific evidence about the harms, including DFO data linking the near extinction of wild Atlantic salmon in Con River to nearby fish farms. Of course, Mazel Joe and Brenda Mitchell are close. Mitchell sees Joe as a kind of mentor and probably wishes he too could be in office for 40 years like the Miaobigag Chief. It's not only on fish farms that our leadership has deserted us. As residents of the Port-au-Port Peninsula were protesting outside the wind development announcement in Stephenville last month, Mazel Joe was inside, signing a commercial deal with the wind farm developers. It's easy to get discouraged when even our own leaders are acting against the very thing that is most important to Mi'kmaq people, our land and water. Some of us may get to be pretty good in the Mi'kmaq language, and some of us are pretty accomplished craftspeople. But more than anything, it's the land and water that connects us to each other, to the ancestors, and to the generations that will follow. If we lose our land and water, what do we have left? We're at a crucial point in the history of Katumkuk, the island of Newfoundland, and the preservation of our last remaining pieces of wilderness. As we heard in episode 199 from Don Ivany, NL Program Director for the Atlantic Salmon Federation, many things are going on right now under our very noses, out of sight, out of mind, that we may regret in the future when it's too late to do anything about them. Uh, and I want to point out and, and make clear, I mean, you know, as an organization, we are not opposed to, to mining, we're not opposed to aquaculture, those kinds of things. But we are certainly concerned uh, when there are potential impacts like this that could have significant impacts on our wild salmon stocks, particularly those that are threatened. And so, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, you know, this day and age, 
I think the governments involved have to provide a lot more oversight uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, some of these processes that are being used. And we have to find better ways of dealing with this effluent. It's inevitable that we do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very sad to say that, uh, I, you know, I really don't believe that, that the public, general public is, is, is fully aware uh, about, you know, the impacts associated with those mines and, and the potential for them to have such significant impact. And uh, a lot of this has been under the radar at a mine, at a site, so to speak. And, uh, you know, but I'll tell you, if, if in five years time, for example, a mine like the, the, the Marathon mine goes ahead and there's a spill and, 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 you know, major spill and these toxic chemicals end up down the watershed and fish start dying during the recreational salmon fishery, people are going to be asking a lot of questions. People are going to be quite concerned. Well, it's a little bit too late to, do, to, to be at that particular time. The time to make their concerns known is now. That was Don Ivany of the Atlantic Salmon Federation. And we also heard from Greg Jeans, former chief of Burgio First Nation, and Marilyn Rowe of the Environmental Transparency Committee. All guests here on Mi'kmaq Matters, all members of the panel at a very important gathering we are sponsoring on the evening of Wednesday, October 12th at the Lions Club in Stephenville. And featuring all of you, either present with us in Stephenville or joining us on Facebook with your questions, suggestions, and your on-the-ground reports of what's happening near you. How do we harness Mi'kmaq people power to protect our land and water for seven generations, our children, our grandchildren, and their children and grandchildren? Now, I'm not saying this because the event is being sponsored by Mi'kmaq Matters, but this will be the most important event you'll attend this year. The situation is urgent. Things are happening right now that cannot be undone. We must come together in people power before it's too late. Mi'kmaq Matters is pleased to sponsor this event. Admission is free of charge. We'd appreciate any financial support you're able to give us to help cover our expenses, either via patreon.com slash Mi'kmaq Matters or email transfer mi'kmaq.matters at gmail.com. That's M-I-K-M-A-Q dot matters at gmail.com. No donation is too small or too big. And that's it for another episode of Mi'kmaq Matters. Before we go, congratulations to Elder Daniel Paul on the launch of the fourth edition of his landmark book, We Were Not the Savages. 2 to 4 p.m. on Friday, September 30th at the University of King's College in Halifax on the second floor of the new academic building. September 30 from 2 to 4 p.m. Well done, Elder Daniel Paul. Congratulations. Thanks for listening on the Mi'kmaq Matters Radio Network on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for the latest Mi'kmaq news and views. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. I'm Glenn Wheeler. I'm Sanokamata.